Gateway, good day. Let us continue in worship through the word of God, wherever you may be. Let me invite you to stand. And uh, if if you're able, this is a little bit of a longer teaching text. And so uh, this is, we stand out of honor for God's word. There's nothing mystical or magical. It's rather us just trying to integrate our lives with God and Christ. That is to say, when God's word is spoken, we really believe that Jesus is speaking to us through the power of the Spirit. And in this text today, it's it's Jesus' teaching. And so we stand to say, we honor you, God. And so let us stand wherever you are, if you are able, and let us read from Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. This is what we read. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ or the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had to live on. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And you can have a seat. See, like last week, uh, we heard from Tom Clegg. This week, we have the great honor of hearing from Christy Heilman. I, I don't think I can share with you through this medium the joy that this brings me. And and let, let me just share a little story. Um I have been waiting, like waiting for people, a community that would see the voice of God coming to us through the people of God, male and female. And so I, I love this woman, her spirit, this sister in Christ. And so I commend her to you this day. Christy is our children's director here at Gateway. She teaches our youth. She's coming alongside us to raise them up in the way they should go, so to speak. And she's also a person who speaks wisdom into my life. I get to sit with her throughout the week and scheme and strategize and think and pray. What does it look like for us to uh, pursue the presence of God, to prayerfully contend for his kingdom? And what does it look like for all of our community to join him in renewal? 
That is her heart for us. And so uh, let us receive what she has for us. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to pray for you and for her as we, we come to hear her this day. Um, so let's, let's do that now. If, if you would, uh, just with, uh, this may feel silly to you, but this is worth it because this is good. Maybe just extend the right arm of fellowship toward Christy uh, as a blessing to her in this moment. So Lord, we ask that you would work mightily through this woman that you would so stir our affections for Jesus that we would see clearly the Father heart of God. Come, Spirit, stand in her body, speak with her mouth, and think with her mind, we pray. Amen. Hey, Gateway, I'm so glad to be with you. Last week, Tom Clegg shared with us a message about the Great Commandment. And today, our passage in Mark 12 tells us who Jesus is and what matters to Him and His Father. When I come to the Scriptures and prepare to teach people I love, which is all of you, by the way, um, I tend to be a just-the-facts ma'am kind of person. I want to get down to the heart of the matter and then can't wait to share the truth that I find there with others. So when I read through these passages a couple months ago, I thought, these don't really seem connected. These three vignettes seem so different from each other. And a vignette, by the way, just a pretty word for a short, descriptive literary sketch. So I considered focusing on just one of these, but as I thought and prayed about it, I felt led by God to do all three together. And as I submitted to that call, even though I felt anxious about it, I began to see a thread that sewed these three pieces together. These are pieces of Jesus' story. The pieces of our stories tell who we are, where we've come from, where we're going, what we're all about. But there are so many pieces that make up the story of who we are. How do we choose which ones to share when we're telling our story? Well, often it depends on the situation, the place, the person, the setting. For example, when I consider telling the story of how I came to know Christ. I would share specific pieces of my story that highlight that thread of my life. For example, I might share about sleeping over at friends' houses so I could go to church with them on Sunday morning, or devouring Christian music when I discovered it because it spoke to my soul. I mean, we're talking DC Talk, Newsboys, Third Day, Jars of Clay. Ah, I still love it all. But... I'd also share about the difficult pieces of my story, like having a child born with club foot that led to years of treatment and therapy, or having two miscarriages in one year that nearly broke me. Now on the surface, these pieces might not seem connected, but they do connect because they're what helped draw me to Christ, that made me into who I am today and continue to refine me into the woman of God that I'm meant to be. Just as the pieces of our story tell about who we are and what we're about, the pieces of Jesus' story weave together to tell us who He is and why He's come. And Mark has chosen specific pieces of Jesus' story to share with us. So then we might ask, why these pieces? Well, what we're going to see is these three vignettes. They each are establishing Jesus' authority clearly saying who He is, the Messiah, as well as saying what's important to God, what matters to Him, 
because it's different from what the leaders say and what the people's expectations are. Now, we're going to work through these pieces, but first, a little context. All three of these stories, they're happening around the same time and in the same place, Passover at the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, it's the final scene with Jesus in the temple before his arrest and crucifixion. Now, the whole of the temple was huge. Historians say it would fit in something like 10 football fields. And there were, of course, areas where some people could go, but others couldn't. Now, as for these vignettes, scholars believe that Jesus was likely teaching in the court of the women. And that's where the treasury and the offering boxes were also located. The court of the women was as far as women would have been allowed to go into the temple. And I think this is telling. Jesus went to where a more diverse group of people could interact with him and hear him teach. Now, let's dig into vignette number one. Starting in verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, if you're like me, you might have read that and said, uh, what? But we have to remember he's speaking to people who would have grown up hearing and reading and memorizing the Torah, the Old Testament. And there are many times when we might be saying, huh? When for them, it's like a light switch being turned on. Or if they didn't understand completely, they're at least intrigued and that dimmer switch on their light is starting to get a little brighter. Now, here's what I mean. In this passage, Jesus is actually quoting a psalm written by David, Psalm 110. He's doing what Tim Mackey from the Bible Project would call hyperlinking to the Old Testament. Psalm 110 is a psalm that looks forward to the Messiah. In fact, this psalm is almost entirely future-oriented, and it's one of the most cited Old Testament texts in the New Testament. It's either quoted or alluded to in all the Gospels, in Acts, Paul's letters, Hebrews, Peter's letters. I really could keep going about this psalm, but it's a whole other conversation. So back to it. It's a bit of a conundrum that Jesus is posing here. How can the Messiah be the son of David, but the Messiah also be David's Lord, as it says on Psalm 110? Well, as I was looking into this, I came across this in one commentary. It says, if David himself distinguished between his earthly kingly role and the exalted kingly role of the coming Messiah, the Messiah is not only the son of David, but his Lord. The Messiah isn't coming to be another King David. He's not coming to reestablish political independence for Israel. He is coming to establish an exalted kingdom, a kingdom where he, the Messiah, will sit at the right hand of God, a kingdom that will never end. The question that Jesus raises here publicly, who is the Messiah of God, is one that he's already raised privately with his disciples. Remember, back in Mark 8, Jesus was asking, who do you say I am? He's not asking that anymore. He is telling them who he is. Everyone, including the disciples, had expectations for who they thought the Messiah would be, 
what he would be like, how he would behave, what he would do or not do. Jesus is decidedly not what anyone expected. Back in Mark 10, he told his disciples he was going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant, but they still didn't get it. He wants his disciples to understand who he really is. Here, he is establishing his authority. He is affirming, revealing who he is, the Messiah. And at the end of it, it says, the great throng heard him gladly. They're marveling at what Jesus is saying, what he's telling them. They are eagerly listening, leaning in to hear what he has to say. I would pose to us, are we listening? Are we eagerly leaning in to hear what Jesus has to say to us? That's vignette number one. Now, vignette number two, starting in verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Once Jesus has laid down the authority with which he speaks, he kind of lays into the scribes at the temple. He's teaching the scribe, the, t- the crowd there, and the scribes are also there, of course, but he says, beware the scribes. In that last vignette, it said that the people heard him gladly. I, I wonder if everyone is hearing this gladly. The scribes were the teachers of the religious law, the experts. Jesus does not seem to be trying to win them over here. No, this was not going to make him popular. In fact, we know it would eventually lead to his arrest and his death. But Jesus is confronting the leaders here, condemning their hypocrisy. He says the scribes like to walk around in long robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue. And it's true. Many scribes would seek public recognition in the same way that we do now, by the clothes they wore, through places of honor. At banquets or other gatherings, guests were assigned seating based on their rank or status. Some seats were indeed better than others. Now, we might think of good seats as front row at a concert or sidelines of a game, post-COVID, of course, but at this time, it was all about the place of honor. Maybe something like private box seats at an event today. Now, I've come to realize over the last few years that I would see myself as one of the crowd, one of the unpopular people that Jesus chose to hang out with. I think many of us would do that, but what I've also realized is that it's much more likely that I'm like one of the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders who are saying one thing and doing another. I have been much more like the religious leaders that Jesus is calling out than not. I found myself seeking importance, status, letting pride seep in. I confess that for years I had the attitude of anything you can do, I can do better. I was fiercely competitive in everything I did, always out to prove myself, to show that I was better, to get accolades or approval or applause. When Jesus got a hold of my heart, there was a big change. But this is something that I still fight against today. I still find myself wanting to show off or whether it's through singing or writing or whatever it might be, even parenting sometimes. 
I want to put it out there on social media just to get that praise. That may as well be seeking a seat of honor, a status to show that I'm better. Now we all do this at one time or another, seek status and popularity, whether it's by way of money or a job or a relationship, or in this day and age, it's often through likes and follows on social media. Those are our seats of honor. We saw the disciples themselves clamoring for seats of honor just a couple of chapters ago in Mark. Remember back in Mark 10? James and John went to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And what did they ask? Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. What are they looking for? Seats of honor. And Jesus, being Jesus, doesn't give them a direct yes or no. Instead, he says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They say that they are. And he tells them they will have to go through that. But then he goes on to say this about those seats of honor that they asked for. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So maybe he didn't directly say, no, you can't sit there. But he is essentially saying you shouldn't be seeking to sit there. Christ did not come to serve, but to, to be served, but to serve. And he means for his followers to do the same. In this second vignette, Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy of all of that clamoring for importance and status and image, the meaninglessness of it all. God isn't looking at any of that. As we know, we know he's not looking at that from his word, like in 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He's pointing out here that the scribes and the religious leaders have gotten it backwards. And not only that, but they've gone even farther and hurt or exploit others in their status seeking. In verse 40, Jesus says the scribes devour widows' houses. They would act as lawyers and Instead of helping, they would actually exploit the people that they were supposed to be serving, and all while pretending to be pious. That is obviously not the heart of God. In one commentary, I read this. For Jesus, true devotion to God includes a concern for social justice. Oppression, injustice, it has been around since the fall, and it is still around today. And It breaks the heart of God. It's clear in verse after verse of his word. And the people who were tasked with leading God's people were instead exploiting them. We, as followers of Jesus, are tasked with following his example of speaking up for those who are being mistreated or oppressed. Jesus has already established the authority with which he speaks. He is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. He told his people who he is, and he is digging in to show them what matters to him and to his Father, and he is calling people out while he's doing it. 
That is vignette number two. Let's go to vignette number three. Starting in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. All this time, in vignettes one and two, Jesus is up and teaching the crowd. When he's finished, he sits down at the temple and he looks toward the treasury and watches people giving into the offering box. He's just finished talking about how the scribes are exploiting widows, and then we see a widow giving an offering at the temple. Now, Jesus actually called his disciples over to him to tell them what he saw. That strikes me as no small thing. Now, he could have just observed this and moved on, but he makes a point to call them over and say something about what he has seen. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Truly, I say to you, why did Jesus put it this way? Well, truly is one of those words that when you're reading the scriptures, it should cause you to sit up and pay attention because whoever is speaking is about to say something really important. And as I was digging in and researching for this teaching, I discovered something cool. Well, I think it's cool, and I think you guys will appreciate it. Truly here comes from the Greek word for amen. Yeah, really, but it seems strange to start a sentence with amen, right? We're used to instead ending something with amen. Putting an amen at the end of a statement means yes, or I agree, or just endorsing whatever was said before it. But putting amen, or truly, at the beginning of a sentence or a statement does something a bit different. It, um, what I learned is that it actually implies that what follows is true. It also means that the person making the statement has firsthand knowledge and the authority to say this. So when Jesus says here, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. He is speaking with authority. He is not guessing that this is true. He is declaring it is true. He knows it for a fact. He sees her heart, her intent. In just the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus uses a single amen, or truly, to introduce more than 50 statements of truth. Matthew 5, 8, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot of the law will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Mark 9, 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Mark eleven twenty three, 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Luke 18, 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child 
shall not enter it. And we could keep going for another 45 statements. Now, when you see a double, truly, truly, or what R.C. Sproul, the theologian, calls the double amen, you best sit up and pay attention. But that's a whole other talk. Now, it's as we said before, God looks at the heart. And Jesus is pointing that out here. Truly, I say to you, this woman is giving from her heart. Jesus saw the heart of those giving lots of money, and he saw the heart of this widow giving very little. He saw their motivations, what their intent was in their giving. And while the rich gave from their surplus, this woman was giving everything she had. If we're really honest, we know this is common today. We give, but not often do we give until it hurts, truly sacrificially. Even if you look at philanthropists, just through the secular lens, they sometimes give thousands of dollars, sometimes millions. But that's often extra they have. It's not truly depleting what they have in the bank. And this isn't just about money, time, care, love, grace, forgiveness. We give out of the extra we have to spare, but not from the depths of our being. We give our time or effort or forgiveness if we feel like we have some to spare, but not if it feels like it might hurt. And not to say we don't need to be sure we are caring well for ourselves because being sure that we are emotionally and spiritually and mentally healthy is so important. We must do that. But if we are really honest, how often do we not give, whether it's money or time or effort, because we don't feel like it? We talk ourselves out of it. We say, I shouldn't have to do that. If we are a follower of Jesus, the Messiah, the risen King, we're to be a servant. We are to lay down our lives, pick up our cross, and follow Him. Who are you going to be? Who am I going to be? Are we going to be like those who give what's just convenient for us? Or are we going to be like the widow and give all of ourselves? Paul lays this out beautifully in Philippians. Chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus didn't cling to his status even though he had every right to. He chose to empty himself and become a servant for our sake. How can we do any less? This pandemic has done a lot of things, not the least of which is to present us with an opportunity, an opportunity to enter into deeper relationship with our Father, to be refined and renewed in a way that we never have been before. I don't know about you, but for me, this has been a season that has forced me to slow down and face things that I had pretty successfully been able to avoid before. 
It was easy to get busy and distracted, whether it was schedules or work or family gatherings or playdates with friends or school events, slowing down was something I had to be deliberate about. And when I did slow down, I wanted it to be a positive experience. So I didn't spend a lot of time digging into the junk in my head and my heart. But once COVID-19 hit and I was forced to slow down, even stop in some areas, I was forced to deal with my junk. I could more clearly see what I was clinging to, what I wasn't laying down and surrendering to Jesus, what I was refusing to loose my grip on. Some of those things were preconceived notions, what I thought something should be or should look like. And some of those things were blinders that I didn't realize I was wearing, preventing me from seeing the truth. I think as a body of Christ, we are being given an opportunity to see more clearly what God intended the church, the big C church, to be, and what it really looks like to be a follower of Jesus. I'm not saying I don't get discouraged in the season. I do. It has been an incredibly difficult time and one that has stretched me thin. But I'm also encouraged because I see God moving. I see His Spirit at work, and I get fired up, you guys. This season is at its very least inconvenient, and at its worst, it's devastating. But I don't want to miss what God is doing in the midst of all this. I want to go where He is going. I'm all about just the facts, ma'am. And the facts are this. Jesus has told us who he is and what matters to him. Our Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Our Jesus didn't seek status or the best seats in the house. Our Jesus gave everything he had. Our Jesus laid down his life so we could live. So what have you laid down? Is there something he's asking you to lay down that you've been clinging to? What are you willing to lay down today so that you can open your hands and let him lead you where he is going? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in the midst of the chaos, you give peace. That in the midst of difficulty and sadness, you give joy. That... Through it all, you love us beyond what we can even understand. Father, I pray that for each of us today, you would show us what it is we've been clinging to so tightly so that we can loose our grip, lay it down at the foot of the cross, and follow you where you are going. Amen.